body aches at bedtime, Sierra Sil is a natural mineral supplement that supports joint health, calms inflammation, and we're so sure it'll work for you as it has for me and my husband for over 10 years. It has a money-back guarantee. Go to sierrasil.com, S-I-E-R-R-A-S-I-L, and use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to Drift. Here, we tell you stories and share tales that I hope will, sooner than later, bring you to a place of sleepiness, no matter where you are, in a chair, in your bed, in some place where you just want to hear a voice tell you a story, made possible by Envy Pillow. Created by Kathy and Kim, Canadian registered nurses who have partnered here with me. I've rested my weary head on an Envy pillow for mm, about 20 years now. It started because of stress-related neck pain, and I've been in love ever since. Learn more in the morning at Envy, E-N-V-Y, pillow.com. Tonight... I bring you a different kind of sleep story. It's one from the transcendental nature lover, Henry David Thoreau. An American, he delivered a talk called Walking, or The Walk, many times over the mid-19th century. And in it, he tells of the spiritual experience of being in nature. And so, instead of a fairy tale... I'm sharing with you some of Mr. Thoreau's talk. In all, it was about two hours long. But we'll be taking a shortcut on this walk here and there. Just before we take our first steps together, let's get you comfortable and ready for your sleep. Take a deep breath in, sinking into whatever you find yourself resting in right now, your body feeling heavy, And exhale, letting out all of your cares of the day as you prepare to put on magical lighted shoes for our stroll together, our saunter. And now once more in. And as you exhale, think these words, I am safe, I am loved, I am at peace. And if you're ready, hand in hand, let's drift with the words of Henry David Thoreau. I wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wilderness, as contrasted with a freedom and culture merely civil, to regard humans as an inhabitant or a part and parcel of nature rather than a member of society. I have met with but one or two persons in the course of my life who understood the art of walking, that is, taking walks, who had a genius, so to speak, for sauntering, which word is beautifully derived from idle people who roved about the country in the Middle Ages and asked charity under pretense of going à la Sainte-Terre, to the Holy Land, till the children exclaimed, 
There goes a Saint Terre, a Saunterer, a Holy Lander. Some, however, would derive the word from Saint Terre without land or a home, which therefore, in the good sense, will mean having no particular home, but equally at home everywhere. For this is the secret of successful sauntering. Our expeditions are only tours, and come round again at evening to the old hearthside from which we set out. Half the walk is just retracing our steps. The walking of which I speak has nothing in it akin to taking exercise, but is itself the enterprise and adventure of the day. If you would get exercise, go in search of the springs of life. Think of a man swinging dumbbells for his health when those springs are bubbling up in far-off pastures unsought by him. Moreover, you must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates when walking. When a traveler asked Wordsworth's servant to show him her master's study, she answered, Here is his library, but his study is out of doors. When we walk, we naturally go to the fields and woods. What would become of us if we walked only in a garden or a mall? Of course, it is of no use to direct our steps to the woods if they do not carry us towards that place. The thought of some work will run in my head, and I am not where my body is. I am out of my senses. In my walks, I would be pleased to return to my senses. What business have I in the woods if I'm thinking of something out of the woods? My vicinity affords many good walks, and though for so many years I have walked almost every day, and sometimes for several days together, I have not yet exhausted them. An absolutely new prospect is a great happiness, and I can still get this any afternoon. Two or three hours walking will carry me to as strange a country as I expect ever to see. A single farmhouse which I had not seen before is sometimes as good as the dominions of a faraway king. Nowadays, almost all man's improvements, so-called, as the building of houses and the cutting down of the forest and of all large trees, simply deform the landscape and make it more and more tame and cheap. A people who would begin by burning the fences and let the forest stand. I saw the fences half consumed, their ends lost in the middle of the prairie, and some worldly miser with a surveyor looking after his bounds, while heaven had taken place around him, and he did not see the angels going to and fro, but was looking for an old post hole in the midst of paradise. I can easily walk ten, fifteen, twenty, any number of miles, commencing at my own door, without going by any house, without crossing a road, 
except where the fox and the mink do, first along by the river, and then the brook, and then the meadow, and the woodside. There are square miles in my vicinity which have no inhabitant. From many a hill, I can see civilization and the abodes of man afar. The farmers and their works are scarcely more obvious than woodchucks and their burrows. Humans and their affairs, church and state and school, trade and commerce, and manufactures and agriculture, even politics, the most alarming of them all. I am pleased to see how little space they occupy in the landscape. In one half hour, I can walk off to some portion of the earth's surface, where a man does not stand from one year's end to another. And there, consequently, politics are not, for they are but as the cigar smoke of a man. The village is the place to which the roads tend, a sort of expansion of the highway, as a lake of a river. It is the body of which roads are the arms and legs, a trivial place, the thoroughfare of travelers. Some do not walk at all. Others walk in the highways. A few walk across lots. Roads are made for horses and men of business. I do not travel in them much, comparatively, because I am not in a hurry to get to any tavern or grocery or livery stable or depot to which they lead. I am a good horse to travel, but not from choice a roadster. What is it that makes it so hard sometimes to determine where we will walk? I believe that there is a subtle magnetism in nature where, if we unconsciously yield to it, will direct us in the right direction. When I go out of the house for a walk, uncertain as yet where I will bend my steps and submit myself to my instinct to decide for me, I find, strange and whimsical as it may seem, that I finally and inevitably settle southwest towards some particular wood or meadow or deserted pasture or hill in that direction. The future lies that way to me, and the earth seems more unexhausted and richer on that side. The outline which would bound my walks would be not a circle, but a parabola, or rather like one of those cometary orbits, which have been thought to be non-returning curves, in this case opening westward, in which my house occupies the place of the sun. I turn round and round, irresolute sometimes for a quarter of an hour, until I decide, for the thousandth time, that I will walk into the southwest or west. Eastward, I only go by force, but westward, I go free. Every sunset which I witness inspires me with the desire to go to a west as distant and as fair as that into which the sun goes down. He appears to migrate westward daily and tempt us to follow him. He is the great western pioneer whom the nations follow. We dream all night of those mountain ridges in the horizon 
though they may be of vapor only, which were last gilded by his rays. I believe in the forest, and in the meadow, and in the night in which the corn grows. Life consists with wildness. The most alive is the wildest. Not yet subdued to man, its presence refreshes him. One who pressed forward incessantly and never rested from his labors, who grew fast and made infinite demands on life, would always find himself in a new country or wilderness and surrounded by the raw materials of life. He would be climbing over the prostrate stems of primitive forest trees. Hope and the future for me are not in lawns and cultivated fields, not in towns and cities, but in the impervious and quaking swamps. When, formerly, I have analyzed my partiality for some farm which I had contemplated purchasing, I have frequently found that I was attracted solely by a few square rods of impermeable and unfathomable bog a natural sink in one corner of it. That was the jewel which dazzled me. I derive more of my subsistence from the swamps which surround my native town than from the cultivated gardens in the village. Why not put my house, my parlor, behind this plot instead of behind that meager assemblage of curiosities, that poor apology for a nature and art which I call my front yard. It is an effort to clear up and make a decent appearance when the carpenter and mason have departed, though done as much for the passer-by as the dweller within. The most tasteful front yard fence was never an agreeable object of study to me. The most elaborate ornaments, acorn tops or what not, soon wearied and disgusted me. Bring your sills up to the very edge of the swamp, though it might not be the best place for a dry cellar, so that there be no access on that side to citizens. Front yards are not made to walk in, but at most through, and you could go in the back way. Yes, though you may think me perverse, if it were proposed to me, to dwell in the neighborhood of the most beautiful garden that ever human art contrived, or else of a dismal swamp, I should certainly decide for the swamp. How vain, then, have been all your labors, citizens, for me! My spirits infallibly rise in proportion to the outward dreariness. Give me the ocean, the desert, or the wilderness. In the desert, pure air and solitude compensate for want of moisture and fertility. When I would recreate myself, I seek the darkest woods, the thickest, and, to the citizen, most dismal swamp. I enter a swamp as a sacred place, a sanctum sanctorum. There is the strength, the marrow, of nature. A town is saved not more by the righteous men in it than by the woods and swamps that surround it. 
a township where one primitive forest waves above, while another primitive forest rots below. Such a town is fitted to raise not only corn and potatoes, but poets and philosophers for the coming ages. In such a soil grew Homer and Confucius and the rest, and out of such a wilderness comes the reformer. To preserve wild animals implies generally the creation of a forest for them to dwell in or resort to. So it is with man. In literature, it is only the wild that attracts us. Dullness is but another name for tameness. It is the uncivilized, free, and wild thinking. In Hamlet and the Iliad, in all the scriptures and mythologies, not learned in schools, that delights us as the wild duck is more swift and beautiful than the tame, so is the wild, the mallard thought which mid falling dews wings its way above the fens. A truly good book is something as natural and as unexpectedly and unaccountably fair and perfect as a wild flower discovered on the prairies of the West or in the jungles of the East. Genius is a light which makes the darkness visible, like the lightning's flash, which perchance shatters the temple of knowledge itself, and not a taper lighted at the hearthstone of the race, which pales before the light of common day. English literature breathes no quite fresh, and in this sense, wild strain. It is an essentially tame and civilized literature, reflecting Greece and Rome. Her wildness is a green wood, her wild man a Robin Hood. There is plenty of genial love of nature, but not so much of nature herself. Her chronicles inform us when her wild animals, but not when the wild men in her, became extinct. Where? is the literature which gives expression to nature. He would be a poet who could impress the winds and streams into his service to speak for him, who nailed words to their primitive senses as farmers drive down stakes in the spring which the frost has heaved, who derived his words as often as he used them, transplanted them to his page with earth adhering to their roots, whose words were so true and fresh and natural that they would appear to expand, like the buds at the approach of spring, though they lay half-smothered between two musty leaves in a library. Yes, to bloom and bear fruit there, after their kind, annually, for the faithful reader, in sympathy with surrounding nature. In short, all good things are wild and free. There is something in a strain of music, whether produced by an instrument or by the human voice. Take the sound of a bugle in a summer night, for instance, which by its wildness, to speak without satire, reminds me of the cries emitted by wild beasts in their native forests. 
I love even to see the domestic animals reassert their native rights. Any evidence that they have not wholly lost their original wild habits and vigor, as when my neighbor's cow breaks out of her pasture early in the spring and boldly swims the river, a cold gray tide twenty-five or thirty rods wide, swollen by the melted snow. Any sportiveness in cattle is unexpected. I saw one day a herd of a dozen bullocks and cows running about and frisking in unwieldy sport, even like kittens. They shook their heads, raised their tails, and rushed up and down a hill. And I perceived by their horns, as well as their activity, their relation to the deer tribe. I rejoice that horses and steers have to be broken before they can be made the servants of men, and that men themselves have some wild oats still left to sow before they become submissive members of society. Undoubtedly, all men are not equally fit subjects for civilization, and because the majority, like dogs and sheep, are tame by inherited disposition, this is no reason why the others should have their natures broken that they may be reduced to the same level. Here, here is the vast, savage, hovering mother of ours, nature lying all around, with such beauty and such affection for her children as the leopard, and yet we are so early weaned from her breast to society, to that culture which is exclusively an interaction of man on man a sort of breeding in and in, which produces at most a merely English nobility, a civilization destined to have a speedy limit. A man's ignorance sometimes is not only useful but beautiful, while his knowledge, so-called, is oftentimes worse than useless, besides being ugly, which is the best man to deal with. He knows nothing about a subject, and, what is extremely rare, knows that he knows nothing, or he who really knows something about it, but thinks that he knows it all. My desire for knowledge is intermittent, but my desire to bathe my head in atmospheres unknown to my feet is perennial and constant. The highest that we can attain to is not knowledge but sympathy with intelligence. I do not know that this higher knowledge amounts to anything more definite than a novel and grand surprise on a sudden revelation of the insufficiency of all that we called knowledge before, a discovery that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in our philosophy. It is the lighting up of the mist by the sun. Man cannot know, in any higher sense than this, any more than he can look serenely and with impunity in the face of the sun. I took a walk on Spaulding's farm the other afternoon. I saw the setting sun lighting up the opposite side of a stately pine wood. Its golden rays straggled into the aisles of the wood as into some noble hall 
I was impressed, as if some ancient and altogether admirable and shining family had settled there in that part of the land, unknown to me. I saw their park, their pleasure ground, beyond through the wood, in Spalding's cranberry meadow. The pines furnished them with gables as they grew. Their house was not obvious to vision. The trees grew through it. Nothing can equal the serenity of their lives. Their coat of arms is simply a lichen. I saw it painted on the pines and oaks. Their attics were in the tops of the trees. We hug the earth. How rarely we climb, but we might elevate ourselves a little more. We might climb a tree at least. I found my account in climbing a tree once. It was a tall white pine on the top of a hill, and though I got well pitched, I was well paid for it, for I discovered new mountains in the horizon which I had never seen before. So much more of the earth and the heavens. I might have walked about the foot of the tree for threescore years and ten, and yet I certainly should never have seen them. But, above all, I discovered around me, it was near the end of June, on the ends of the topmost branches only, a few minute and delicate red cone-like blossoms, the fertile flower of the white pine, looking heavenward. I carried straightway to the village the topmost spire and showed it to strangers who walked the streets, and not one had ever seen the like before, but they wondered as at a star dropped down. Nature has from the first expanded the minute blossoms of the forest only toward the heavens, above men's heads and unobserved by them. We see only the flowers that are under our feet in the meadows. The pines have developed their delicate blossoms on the highest twigs of the wood every summer for ages. Yet scarcely a farmer or hunter in the land has ever seen them. Above all, we cannot afford not to live in the present. He is blessed over all mortals who loses no moment of the passing life in remembering the past. Unless our philosophy hears the cock crow in every barnyard within our horizon, it is belated. That sound commonly reminds us that we are growing rusty and antique in our employments and habits of thoughts. His philosophy comes down to a more recent time than ours. There is something suggested by it that is a newer testament, the gospel according to this moment. He has not fallen astern. He has got up early and kept up early, and to be where he is is to be in season, in the foremost rank of time. It is an expression of the health and soundness of nature, a brag for all the world, healthiness, as of a spring burst forth 
a new fountain of the muses to celebrate this last instant of time. The merit of this bird's strain is in its freedom from all plaintiveness. The singer can easily move us to tears or to laughter. We had a remarkable sunset one day last November. I was walking in a meadow, the source of a small brook, when the sun at last, just before setting, after a cold gray day, reached a clear stratum in the horizon, and the softest, brightest morning sunlight fell on the dry grass and on the stems of the trees in the opposite horizon and on the leaves of the shrub oaks on the hillside, while our shadows stretched long over the meadow eastward, as if we were the only motes in its beams. It was such a light as we could not have imagined a moment before, and the air also was so warm and serene that nothing was wanting to make a paradise of that meadow. When we reflected that this was not a solitary phenomenon, never to happen again, but that it would happen forever and ever, an infinite number of evenings, and cheer and reassure the latest child that walked there. It was more glorious still. And there I leave you, grateful for another sunset and the promise of another sunrise, and thankful to Mr. Thoreau, and I wish you a good night and sweet sauntering in your dreams. <laughs>